Hello and welcome to Listen Here, a new podcast by me, Rachel Halfield-Massey from Other Ways to Walk. This podcast is supported by the National Forest, who are helping me to make six episodes especially about the National Forest. In each episode, I'll interview an expert, either by experience or training, and talk to them about their relationship with nature and their understanding of nature connection. Um, You'll be invited to join us to take part in a nature connection activity, a walk and a meditation, although they are all optional, of course. These activities will be guided by me, so they're informed by many years of experience as a qualified mindfulness instructor, a wellbeing expert, an artist and all round nature lover. So I really hope you enjoy it. And if you want to find more information, please follow the links wherever you found this podcast. So hello and uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I think you'll really enjoy the podcast today. I'm interviewing somebody I I can't wait to to learn more from. Um, So Dr Kirsten McEwen, who's a senior research fellow at University of Derby and a forest bathing guide. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so welcome, Kirsten. Thank, thank you for joining us today. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. So, no, it's, it's great that you're here. So, just to um, give the listeners a little bit of background about who you are and how you've ended up here on the Listen Here podcast. Um, Kirsten spent eight years as a research psychologist working in a mental health unit in Derbyshire. And during this time, she led um, research that contributed to the evidence base for comp- compassion based therapy leading to the implementation of these techniques across 20 NHS trusts. Kirsten then moved to Cardiff to work as a research consultant in a clinical trials unit. And it was here that I think she really discovered a love of nature um, through volunteering with conservation volunteers and on various nature studies and loads of really fascinating things. And she now works as, as a senior research fellow in Derby where she's involved in the Improving Wellbeing in Urban Nature project and is also currently researching the health benefits of forest bathing. Um, so, as I said, lots to talk about. Um, welcome, Kirsten. So, and also just to say, we had hoped to meet in the National Forest today, but I've had shoulder surgery. Um, so that's confined us to Zoom. I'm not driving at the moment. So one more episode um, in our houses. Um, so listeners who've listened to this um, podcast before will, will know that that means that there might be the occasional ring of a doorbell or meow of a cat or other interruptions. Um, I think we all understand now the the limitations of of working in this way. Um, But we will be out in the forest next month um, and the month after. I've got a couple of really lovely interviews lined up. So one with Mark Knight, who's going to talk to us about paganism and woodlands. And hopefully, I'm hoping I'll learn a bit about rituals and sort of spiritual connections with trees from him. And then um, Nicola Lines is an expert in wildlife recording so and biodiversity. So she should be able to show us some really um, some different species as we walk through the woods. Um, but today I'm, I'm just thrilled to have Kirsten here. And I think we'll just kick off with, with the usual starter for the Listen Here podcast, which is um, a tree tale, a story about a, a tree. And listeners, just to say, I think as we've done this over the weeks, I think the really lovely thing about this is noticing how it feels to tell the story. 
Um, so when you remember a story or an event or something that moved you in some way, you kind of relive it through the telling. So I would just encourage everybody to tell someone a story about a tree um, or perhaps something else in nature. But, you know, whether it's face to face or over the phone or even writing it down, if you don't have somebody that you can talk to immediately, and just see how it makes you feel to, to reconnect with an experience like that. Um, so, yeah, over to you, Kirsten. Please, please share your tree tale with us. Oh, thanks. Well, um, I think I've got several trees that I really like. I think having done forest bathing, you can't look at trees in the same way again. So I've really started to notice their different characters. And yeah, there's probably three that spring to mind that are really special. But one of them I always present to people as the best tree in the UK. <laughs> and I'm really proud of it and show it off. It's about a 15 minute drive out of Sheffield city centre where I live. And um, it's on some land that's looked after by the Wildlife Trust. And it's a mix of uh, ancient woodland and heath and quite a few of the trees in there will have been coppiced um, quite a long time ago. And there's this one beech tree that's clearly been coppiced multiple times, must be hundreds and hundreds of years old. Maybe Kirsty, just explain what coppicing is in case people don't know that term. Yeah, so it's an old agricultural practice for harvesting timber more sustainably so when people were trying to collect wood uh, to use for building or to use for firewood um, rather than cut down the whole tree and just sort of leave it for dead they might cut off branches um, and just harvest those and kind of keep coming back and taking more and more um, and I think people have used it in the past as well to open up certain parts of the woodland floor to light uh, in the belief that that's you know, better for certain species. Um, it is for the more kind of obvious species that you see that are really visible, like small mammals and birds, but it, it can be quite bad for the woodland in some ways because there's generally a reason why there aren't gaps in the canopy and trees tend to work together for that not to happen. And that's because uh, for trees to flourish, they like darker, damper conditions. And if there's a gap in their canopy, it means the sunlight can get in, the conditions suddenly change, it becomes drier, hotter, or the wind might get in in a storm and blow other trees over. So generally, I think coppicing is, is traditionally more of an agricultural practice and it's just for a way for people to take woodland, but um, for harvesting timber, but just a bit more sustainably. And this tree is huge. It's, it's trunk, it must be, I don't know, six metres wide, or I'm not very good with measurements, but it's massive and it's been coppiced quite low down. So it has all these crazy thick trunks coming off its initial trunk um, that are big enough to be trees in their own right. And it, it kind of looks like a Medusa, you know, like the, the um, mythical figure with the snake hair. Yeah. It's, it's just this all these branches just waving in all directions um, coming off this tree and it's got some really interesting kind of gnarled shapes to it like one part of it lays down reminds me of a dragon's claw just closing in on itself and then there's this other point which I always point to people and say that it looks like an alien and it, it really does look like a science fiction alien with an outstretched arm and a, and a screaming open mouth and 
it's just all the bizarre shapes that this tree has made. Um, and there's all these nooks in there where the branches have interwoven together and fused together. So there's all these tiny nooks and I've noticed somebody's put one of those geocaching boxes in there and written notes and left stickers in there for people to find. And yeah, I just, I just think shape wise, it's incredible. You can see so many different shapes in this tree, like the alien, the dragon's claw. Um, and there's these tiny moss gardens growing on the lower branches as well. They're sending out those little brown flowers and yeah. it, it's just like a whole world. It's incredible. Uh, so that's, that would be my favourite tree of the moment. Well, it sounds amazing. Yeah, I mean, you, you paint a lovely picture of it. I can just imagine, yeah, lying underneath that tree. <clears throat> and it, it, you, it makes me think of trees in like Tolkien books or mm. the faraway tree or, you know, all those kind of, um, well, the, it's not really folklore, is it? But it, yeah, the, the, the kind of the magical other world of a tree. That's what it makes me think about. Um, which is a really lovely place to start the conversation. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, so when we talked yesterday, Kirsten, um, we sort of discovered, I think, that, that we'd both had a point in our lives where um, nature suddenly became more important or became more important again, perhaps, for our own well-being um, for different reasons. So that was for me probably 10 years ago after not being very well. And I, I, that's when I started my habit of sitting under a tree with a sketchbook um, as often as I possibly could. Um, but you spent lots of time sitting under huge colonies of seabirds and gulls in the Bristol Channel, um, being pooed on by birds and counting them, which yeah. is, you know, I, probably had a similar effect on us both, but very different sorts of experiences. And you used a phrase when we talked about it yesterday and I wrote it down and it's kind of stayed in my mind. So you said um, that it was really special being on an island in a species minority. Yeah. And I just thought that, that description, I think it's really good for us to, to be in a place where you're in a minority or where you're kind of insignificant or even irrelevant. Um, and that's often sort of spoken about in poetry and in nature writing, but it, often in quite kind of grandiose terms or, you know, yeah, sort of cliches or things like that. And I just I really like that definition, a species minority. It's kind yeah. of actual. Um, but yeah, it just sounded really amazing. And, and well, you did so much different volunteering and interesting work. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that. I know we're going, we're going to talk a bit more about the, the work you do more recently. Um, you mentioned something as well that I just thought I can't believe I didn't ask more about that. You said you'd done a study of lugworm semen. Yes. <laughs> you know, I never thought I would have that. Um, anyone would say that to me. I, yeah, I just thought, wow, that's a fascinating world that you've discovered. Um, yeah, I think once you start doing conservation volunteering, one thing really does lead to another and you can go in directions you weren't expecting. Um, yeah, I um, moved to Cardiff to work in clinical trials and the city itself is, is lovely for green spaces. They've got some amazing parks in the city. They're so lucky. I've even been in Butte Park, which is a, a large park next to the River Taff in Cardiff and saw an otter in the city centre. And I know the difference between a mink and an otter because I'd seen mink there before. 
couldn't believe it when I saw an otter and you can see salmon leaping up the salmon ladders as well at a certain time of year it's just amazing to have that in such an urban area mm. and the islands I was going to well the, the one I most commonly went to was flat home where I was volunteering it's only three miles off the coast of Cardiff but you're in a completely other world where there's maybe six volunteers living there permanently looking after the island and then you know over 3,000 lesser black back seagulls all flying around you, pooing in your hair. Um, <laughs> it was just such an incredible retreat. You could still see the city from the island, but you just felt so far away and so wild and natural. It was, it was lovely. And yeah, through volunteering on Flat Home, uh, I got trained up in all kinds of citizen science projects. Like they wanted more people on islands and on the coast to look out for cetaceans. So, you know, species of dolphin and whale off the coasts of the UK. So I ended up training in that and was really pleasantly surprised to actually see things like harbour porpoise and dolphins around the UK coast. Because if you, if someone shows you how to look for them, suddenly you see them, it's really, it's really obvious, but um, very easy to miss if you didn't know what you were looking for. And I got involved in a project as well, looking at um, surveying rocky shores and different species that you find on rocky shores, like um, seaweeds and different types of shelled creature and crabs and, and all that kind of thing. And a bit of a spin-off project from that was there was a team of researchers who were trying to uncover the breeding habits of lugworms, because apparently it's really difficult to monitor. People have spent years as PhD students looking at their breeding cycle and have not been able to find the evidence. It's, it, they're very secretive or very elusive in the way that they go about their breeding behaviour. It's very much tied to the moon and the tides. And the male lugworm will dig this. You, you see this shallow hole in the sand sometimes in a, what looks like a worm cast that's been sent up nearby. That's a lugworm. Yeah. And they're this really long, thick, spiny corkscrewed worm and um, they burrow into the sand and at the right time of year when the moon and the tide are right they will um, for want of a better word ejaculate into this hole in the sand and then the waves wash over it and they wash the semen over the females and they're they're fertilized okay. um, but nobody had ever been able to record this so I spent a lot of time on my hands and knees on Welsh coasts <laughs> looking for lugworm semen. <laughs> That's amazing and I just I love the fact that there's so much that we don't know yet you know that that we haven't discovered there's so much mystery isn't there and as you say it's a combination of your own curiosity and then having somebody who can show you how to look. Yeah. And, uh, I love that you've said that I, you know I sort of think of the work that I do really it's about that it's about that kind of skill of noticing and tuning into details in different ways and, and knowing moving from kind of just looking at something to really seeing it it might be just worth saying as well to to the listeners that if if you feel inspired then you know there's no time like the present go and find your local conservation group you didn't know how to do that or how you no. know until you you went along and and people showed you and they taught you and you know it's yeah you've seen dolphins you know how to do amazing things now so I would really encourage people just you know find your local conservation group and get out there and, and do things like that it's really it's really inspiring um what you've talked about Kirsten so 
So following that, you eventually found yourself back in the Midlands um, and started doing some volunteering in the National Forest. Is that right? Yeah, it was it was really difficult for me to leave behind everything I'd come to know in Cardiff and met some amazing people through conservation volunteering as well. Really good friends. And I came back to the Midlands for work to work on the Improving Wellbeing Through Urban Nature Project with Derby and Sheffield Universities. Mm. But I was very sad to leave the conservation behind and all those friends. So it was a massive relief when I found stuff in the Midlands that I could get involved with. And I ended up doing quite a lot of volunteering, um, not far from where I was living at Sense Valley and Hicks Lodge. Um, yeah, just bits of dry stone walling, hedge laying um just path clearance clearing up the sites around the bird hides the most fun job I did was one of the uh turn islands you know you get those little boxes those rafts in the middle of lakes sometimes that you see yeah. um they're placed there deliberately for birds like terns or gulls to to lay their eggs on so that they're protected from predators and one of those had broken its anchor and drifted off so it was really fun we used these fly tipped tires and filled them with cement and made our own anchors and then went out in a rubber dinghy and had to throw these really heavy anchors over the side without throwing ourselves in <laughs> and um yeah position these turn rafts back in the center of the lake so that they'd have somewhere to breed and I did lots of amphibian and butterfly surveying with the national forest as well so that was great that was another set of skills and just learning where to look for um, toads and frogs and learning about how to identify their different types of spawn and, and it was amazing on the walk because you could hear the the frogs just making the most incredible sound they sounded more like cows like a herd of cows than frogs the way they were croaking um, during breeding season and yeah a lot of guidance on identifying butterflies as well um, really fantastic. I'd, I'd recommend to anyone to get involved with bits of conservation, volunteering and surveying. It's, it just really helps you appreciate nature on a whole new level and notice things you wouldn't previously have, have spotted. And it's, it's just it's really important work, isn't it? You know, if, if um, we can help contribute to knowing what's what's surviving and thriving and what's dwindling and you know and provide that evidence then that helps um in, that informs policy about how to manage land or how to improve habitats or you know it, it sort of it has a kind of a, a bigger action in the world doesn't it you know and, and there are lots of ways to get in. and the, I interviewed for the last um episode I interviewed a tracking expert and we were talking then again about um yeah this sort of doing doing this kind of studying actually it's it's really important if you do it as part of something like the organizations that you've done it with then it contributes knowledge which you know as well as you you get in your own kind of nourishment from doing it yeah uh, so yeah amazing so and then I wondered I thought it would be um good for us to talk a little bit about some of the work that you did studying the benefits of connecting with nature in urban areas mm -hmm. I know from the work that I do that people sometimes imagine that you have to go out of an urban area into a sort of designated nature spot or, um, you know, as a, a 
property that, that manages the land in a particular way in order to really get the benefits of connecting with nature. Yeah, um, so yeah, it was a huge funded project, lots of different teams working on different aspects of it. So there was a team in Sheffield who were looking at some, the kind of land cover generally around Sheffield and looking at relationships between where people lived and if they lived in closer proximity to green space, did it mean that they had better health outcomes and mental well-being? So they were looking at those kind of relationships. And then there was another team looking at some um, barriers and facilitators to people using green space for well-being because there's quite a few people who are not confident to spend time in the outdoors or perhaps haven't really thought about it as a way to improve their well-being. I think if you're not raised with it, if you don't have that childhood connection with nature, mm. it's maybe something that just doesn't occur to you as an adult to do that. So um, I had a colleague uh, who went out and interviewed a lot of people in the community about what nature meant to them and how how they thought they could interact with it to gain any benefits and what might they be less comfortable doing and, and all that kind of information. Um, and my team were looking at uh, really using an intervention to try and get people to notice nature that's in urban areas and more on their doorstep because especially if you're working full-time finding the time to get outdoors often enough um, is really tricky and not everybody can get in a car and drive off somewhere really lovely and wild so I think being able to just have those micro breaks and work even if it's just half an hour on your lunch break to get out and do a walk and notice what's just around your office uh, in the city is is really beneficial so the intervention we developed was a smartphone app um, and it was prompting people to notice the good things in urban nature so just a little reminder to have gratitude for what's immediately around us and people were really surprised at what they were noticing um, I think that was one of the biggest themes to come out of it was that people were saying I can't believe I'm in such a busy urban area there's a major road right next to where I'm stood and I've just seen a fox or I've just heard a woodpecker and I think that was what really struck people and it, it seemed to bring out this sense of awe and joy that you know, I'm here and that fox has just seen me, but it's still going about its business. And what a privilege to be that close to nature and to be able to watch it going about its daily routine. Because um, people could comment, they could take pictures. Um, and yeah, we looked at all of that data and we also collected some health and wellbeing data from questionnaires and found that um, for most people, there was a what you'd call a clinically significant improvement in well-being from just spending one week noticing the good things in urban nature. Amazing! That's that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Is that app still? Is that available? Yeah, it is still available in a slightly different form. So it used to be called Schmapped, as in Sheffield Mapped, and um, now the app development company who helped us develop it, they've. Uh, embedded it into one of their apps called Go Jauntly. So there's a section in there called Nature Notes and you can still go around and it will prompt you once a day just to notice what's good in urban nature and you can make notes, uh, take a photograph. Okay, so I'll, I'll um, include a link for that for the listeners. Um, wherever you picked up this podcast, have a look and you'll, you'll find a link to that app. That sounds really, 
really helpful, really interesting. And um, yeah, just, you know, I do know about the evidence for connecting with nature, but it still constantly blows my mind that actually such a small change that really you can accommodate into your life really easily can have measurable impacts on your well-being. It's, you know, it's just really optimistic. I love thinking about it. Um, so the other thing that I'm really interested in and I want to know more about Kirsten is how you got involved with forest bathing and um, that's now a sort of an area of practice and research for you yeah and I know you know it's something that's been a kind of emerging field of work in, in our part of the world recently and um, all the evidence and the research that I'd come across up until now was not UK based so I was really really excited to hear um, about what you've been doing so perhaps if you could say a little bit about what forest bathing is um, yeah sure yeah I mean I first came across the term forest bathing about I don't know six years ago and initially I thought that sounds like a bunch of hippie nonsense <laughs> nothing I want to be involved in with you know because I'm a research scientist um, it just sounded fluffy and soft and, and a bit hippie uh, and then a colleague approached me and said, um, do you want to write a review paper together looking at how being in nature benefits our physiological well-being, you know, how it lowers our blood pressure and improves our heart rate and lowers stress hormones like cortisol. So I went off and started to look at the literature and was just overwhelmed by how much evidence I was reading about forest bathing and how it could do all of those things. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, there is something to this. It's not just hippie nonsense. So I started looking into it. Um, I mean, just basically to give a quick definition of it, um, it's in Japan, it's known as forest bathing because the idea is you're bathing in the forest atmosphere. And what they mean by that is you're breathing in all the chemicals uh, that the trees put out because they're, they're, they've got evidence that it boosts our immune system, spending time in natural woodland and breathing in the chemicals from the trees um, and that boost to your immune system is pretty significant just two hours in a woodland can boost your immune system for up to three months afterwards which is pretty amazing yeah um, but it's a mindful walk in nature that's all it is really just a slow silent mindful walk in nature where you try and engage with your surroundings using all of your senses so rather than being in our heads and our to-do lists and thinking about problems at work mm. just really trying to be in one sense at a time so you might be noticing um, the sound of birdsong or running water or the wind blowing through the trees or you might be looking at all the different greens in the foliage or um, looking at light and shade, looking in the foreground and then further into the distance. Uh, you might spend time just smelling the air as you walk through or picking up bits of leaf litter and having a, a sniff of that or seeing if different types of trees have different smells. Uh, and then there's touch exercises as well, where you, you might just spend a bit of time exploring a, a tree bark just with your fingertips mm -hmm. um, or just noticing how the ground feels underneath your feet or how the wind or sun feel on your skin. 
we generally don't do the taste exercises because it might be a health and safety nightmare. <laughs> but some guides will bring along a, a herbal tea like that's made out of nettles or mm. bramble leaf, or I think you can buy pine uh, tea as well. It's that's quite nice. So yeah, they might bring along a flask so you can have a go at a taste task as well. Mm. Um, but it be, can be guided or unguided. But I think a lot of people find it helpful to be guided because our brains are usually so chaotic that if left to our own devices, we will just ruminate or go into the to-do list. So having somebody walking ahead of you, setting the pace, reminding you to you know, pay attention to your surroundings and showing you ways to do so can be extremely helpful. Yeah, I think even for those of us that are really sort of familiar with those kinds of activities it is still a really different experience when you go with a guide and with a group and somebody's kind of holding that space for you and you can, I don't know what I don't know why that is there's some kind of commitment that you make to it or it's just you you kind of conform because everybody else is doing the activity and that that stops you from shooting off in your brain somewhere else mm -hmm. quite easily um so yeah and you know another suggestion for the listeners really if, if that sounds interesting to you, there are forest bathing guides now all over the country and well, all over the world, in fact. So, you know, with a, a little bit of research online, you should be able to find somebody near you um, to be able to take part in it. And, and if not, take yourself out on a noticing walk, just use some of the techniques that Kirsten's already mentioned, or um, you might well, you might listen to one of the meditations that I've done as part of this podcast. Some of them give sort of guided um, information about how to connect with nature that might help you. Or um, or you could even buy a pack of my other ways to walk cards. There's, there's 15 invitations in each one there to give you lots of different ways in. So give it a go in whatever way suits you. And um, yeah, and as Kirsten said, there's, there's loads of evidence that shows us that it, it really does have real world impacts on our well-being, on our emotional health, on our physical health, on our immune systems. Um, so yeah, amazing stuff. And um, you've been involved, Kirsten, in, in a study in England specifically around yep. the benefits of forest bathing. So what have you learned from that? Yeah, I mean, um, I was really lucky because uh, there's a forest bathing guiding group in Surrey called uh, the Forest Bathing Institute and they'd been reaching out to a lot of UK universities to say can you help us evidence forest bathing in the UK because there's loads of evidence it works in Japan and Korea where it's it's mostly been implemented and researched quite heavily but don't really know how it would work in the UK um, you know we're a different culture we have less tree cover than those countries so we ended up collaborating together and doing the first UK research study of forest bathing in a woodland in Derbyshire. And we uh, compared it with an already established UK intervention called Compassionate Mind Training uh, to see if it would be similar in terms of the benefits it would offer to well-being. And we got people to fill out questionnaires at the start and end of a two-hour forest bathing walk and we also measured their heart rate variability the whole time they were walking and the results were fantastic it was as effective as a UK um, you know years of evidence research um, intervention called compassionate mind training and 
uh, we had an average of a 29% reduction in people's anxiety and 57% of our participants showed a clinically significant improvement in their heart rate variability as well. Um, that was brilliant. Heart rate variability. What I'll that? try. It's a tricky one, actually. So we all know about heart rate and how if your heart rate goes up, it's because you might be feeling stressed or anxious or you might be rushing around doing things or you might be excited. And our heart rate drops more when we're feeling, you know, relaxed and calm. Heart rate variability is is a bit more complicated. It's the balance between I think we're all familiar with our fight flight system or our threat system, yeah. um, the place we go to when, you know, your boss criticizes you at work or you're stuck in bad traffic. Um, but there are these other systems. There's um, what you might call your drive system, which is when we tend to be rushing around trying to achieve and do things and gather resources. And then we've got this other system, which is termed rest and digest it's when we're not doing anything we're not seeking anything we're not feeling threatened we're just calm and content and resting and recuperating mm. and I think a lot of people particularly in the western world spend a lot of time bouncing between the threat system and the drive system yeah and, it, and it's exhausting and and we need to spend more time if possible in this rest and digest or calm soothing system um, that very much developed alongside our attachments to other humans. You know, it's how we feel when we feel connected to those around us and we feel safe and secure. So we've got these different neurological systems. Uh, so underpinning the threat system or the drive system is our something called our sympathetic nervous system. And that's sort of preparing us for action, getting us ready to go out and do things or run away from a threat. But then there's this other part of our nervous system called the parasympathetic, and that's linked to the rest and digest, feeling soothed and relaxed. And what you want is a good balance between the two. Mm. We can't get rid of our threat systems as much as we probably feel like we'd like to. It, it's there for a reason. It, it developed to keep us safe in the world, to alert us to threats when we need to and to allow us to engage in the appropriate actions to keep ourselves safe. But we also need to rest desperately. We need that soothing system um, to go to when there isn't a threat and we're just not doing anything and feeling content. Mm. Uh, so having that balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic is really important. And that's something that can be measured with heart rate variability. And it's literally just the distance between heartbeats. So, um, you know, the dis distance between one beat and another might be short and then long, short and long. It's just a a variation in your heart rate um, and it's an indicator of good cardiovascular health and good mental well-being. That's really interesting I did not know that so yeah I've learned something thank you and I'm really pleased to hear that um, the science some of the science behind the the, um, the need for us to rest I think it's something I've campaigned about I have to kind of in in interest of transparency I'll have to literally hold my hand up and say I'm terrible at it and this is why I'm such a massive um kind of supporter of the idea of rest is because it doesn't come naturally to me and I've had to learn how to do it um to the extent when I, I, I used to work at Yorkshire Sculpture Park and I introduced um a an intervention called rest is radical where I installed hammocks in the trees around the park 
with little looking kits so people could just lie back in the hammock and look through glasses that made things look spangly or lovely <laughs> to swing gently in the hammock um yeah I, I i think it's i don't know we live in a world don't we where we really seem to value busyness people yeah. are competitive you know oh i'm so busy i've got forty-seven thousand million emails and you know and then somebody else like oh well that's nothing i mean i've even i don't know it's like to be important you have to be really busy and yeah it's such a strange concept actually to be really important you ought to have the luxury of being able to completely relax but we, we don't really know how to do it all the time no i'm bad at it too i need to get better this is where forest bathing is going to help me i think yeah, often we end up sort of, yeah, being drawn to things that we need, don't we? And then uh, become, you know, a huge advocates and enthusiasts for this. Um, I'm wondering, I think it's probably time we went out and had a go at, at doing it, actually. Um, yeah. Ourselves, and then we can come back and, and talk about that. And um, I think, Kirsten, you've got a suggestion of, of how we might be able to connect with nature for half an hour today. Yeah, so... Um... I've also trained as a guide with the Forest Bathing Institute in Surrey and one of the really lovely exercises they tend to do towards the end of a forest bathing session is something called tree relaxation and it's just where you pick a tree that I don't know that you just feel drawn to and just spend two to five minutes with it just exploring it in whatever way suits you so you could start by looking at the base of the trunk and working all the way up the trunk of the tree just noticing the patterns and textures in the bark and then go off into the branches and just notice the patterns that they make as they branch into ever smaller branches and then terminate in the leaves and then look at the leaf structure or you might want to spend some time just using your fingertips just to touch the bark and see how it feels is it all rough or are there some smooth spots are there some softer places where there might be mosses um, or you could spend some time smelling that tree bark or smelling its leaves just seeing if you can pick anything up from that um, yeah and just listening to the sound of the the wind through the leaves if the trees may be creaking in the wind or any bird song but the, these are all just ideas and suggestions and you can just adapt it to however suits you but one of the nice things to do with when you're spending time with a tree is to think about how in some ways that tree might mirror things in your own life because um, with trees they send out millions and millions of seeds in their lifetime and only a few of them will be lucky enough to grow into trees themselves because it's very rare that they end up those with those seeds landing in the perfect growing conditions to to really develop and I think in some ways there's a real lottery to their their survival and their growth and it's not that dissimilar from our own really in terms of we don't choose where we're born or who our parents are or you know where we grow up it's all a bit of a lottery we just find ourselves here and a bit like the trees we just do the best we can in the growing conditions that we're given and just thinking about how long the trees have been there and the kind of things that they might have experienced or witnessed um, I'm really thinking about them more as a as a, a living organism because I think it's easy to kind of treat them almost as part of the scenery and not really think of them as a living thing. But I, I was reading a book called um, I think it's called The Tr Secret Life of Trees by Peter Woleben, 
And it just blew my mind, some of the stuff he was talking about in there. I had no idea that trees lived as this cooperative community, because I think you're always taught that plants are competing for each other or trees compete for light. And it's it's really not the case if it's natural or semi-ancient woodland, because um, what happens there is that the trees have beneath our feet this root network and they all cross over roots and they also have this fungal network and through the roots and the fungus they're sharing resources like food and water mm. and the evergreen trees uh, in winter will continue to support the growth of the um, trees that drop their leaves in winter and if there's a tree that's damaged or it might even just be a stump the trees around it keep feeding it nutrients to keep it going and you get what you call parent trees where a tree will feed more sugars and water to its own saplings rather than uh, other trees in that community. And it's all in the interest of the tree community because if there's a gap in their woodland, um, the sun can get in, the wind can get in, and then the conditions for growing are not as good and they, they'd have to adapt. So it's really in their interest to work together. And the thing that really blew my mind was that um, they'll even warn each other about threats. They have these chemical signals to say, watch out, there's caterpillars or there's a deer in the area. Quick, make your leaves taste bitter. And, and they do this. They make their leaves taste bitter. So whatever's eating them goes Ugh, and moves further down the line. But because they've warned all their neighbours, that predator has to just leave the area um, mm. if they don't want to eat bitter leaves. So I just thought it's amazing, really, that it's that supportive community. Um, looking after each other so maybe just think about how the trees that you're spending time with how they might mirror some of your life experiences and how similar you might be to to that tree yeah I mean, I've, read, I've read the same book and it blew my mind similarly it is just incredible and I feel very different you know every time I go into a cox or a patch of tree you know a, a small woodland I, I do really feel aware that I'm um, that it's kind of one being that I'm I'm being welcomed into the heart of this this being. It, it feels very different to know how the trees are all nurturing and supporting and relying on each other. And over the last year, when many of us have been separated from loved ones and from our communities, I've found real comfort in that in in being amongst trees and and seeing how they're you know supporting each other. So. I will, I will hold that in my mind and we'll go out now and yeah, and go and spend a few moments with a tree and then come back. And so listener, at this point, I would, I would encourage you to pause the podcast um, and yeah, go outside, have a go at this activity and then join us again to see how we got on. So hi Kirsten, welcome back. Um, we've both been out and done that little activity. Uh, I have to say, um, the thing I really noticed when I first got started was the smells. I think um, just, I walked down to the end of my street and then there's a, a little footpath that goes off over fields. I didn't go very far along it and I was just being kind of, it felt like I was being smashed in the face by really overpowering smells of spring of the nettles and of hawthorn and then I stuck my nose in the cow parsley because that's all now 
really high and yeah that that was uh the thing that really really struck me and then I found um an oak tree it's quite a young oak tree on that footpath that it held on to a lot of its its leaves over the winter so it's got some quite dry kind of crackly leaves still clinging on amongst the really beautiful um new really bright green fresh leaves and I really was struck maybe it was the way the light was on them but I was really struck by how shiny they were the, the new leaves they really kind of they looked like somebody you know rubbed them with polish um and I thought maybe they looked like they might be a bit sticky or something but they weren't they were just very very soft they're all kind of drapey and hanging downwards um yeah, and I really noticed the warmth of the sun. And then as I got underneath the shade, because it overhangs the path, it was really remarkably colder under there. So I did think about what you were saying about that kind of that web of, of trees um, in a forest and how they produce shade because that, that's necessary for their growing conditions. And it's like, it was like night and day. It was very different in the shade and in the sun. Um, yeah, and it was just very lovely to just pause for a moment. I didn't stop for very long because I realised that actually I'd walked a little bit further than I needed to in the, in the time that we'd allotted ourselves. Um, so yeah, in a, in a short time, I had a really, I feel, well, you can probably, I feel different. I feel better for it. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, good. It sounds really nice. I feel a lot better for my quick break as well. Um, I live right behind the train station in Sheffield, but we really lucky got a lot of trees and the cow parsley is really high here as well mm. and there's a bench just nestled in amongst the cow parsley and buttercups underneath these chestnut trees so I sat there for a bit and it just felt like I was in a wildflower meadow because it's really up high at um, head height level and just looked at the chestnut trees and yeah I really appreciated the cool as well it's amazing how just umbrella like the canopy is and how much cooler it is underneath there and I was just noticing the bark um, it kind of looks like you know when you get a really dry spell and the mud in the puddles all cracks yeah that's what the bark was reminding me of and when I looked closer I saw this little colony of ants running up and down it carrying all these green fly and the closer I looked I saw more and more insects as well and just made me really think about that tree as a as a landscape for, for other species to live on and yeah just took me back to some holidays I've been on where you you're in the rainforest trying to see things and uh, it just gave me a similar kind of feeling of discovery yeah I love that you can feel really intrepid can't you kind of watching the yeah. ant you know and it kind of takes you back to that long summer feeling of childhood of lying on your belly in the grass watching insects do mm -hmm. their lives yeah amazing so yeah so that's a really easy thing anybody can go and do that for five minutes and yeah I think well we've both certainly enjoyed it um before we talk about anything else I've remembered I always do a little section in the podcast Kirsty where I talk about robins it kind of happened by accident because I talked about robins in the first one and then I kept going because I'd found a great book with information about what they were doing at different times of the year mm. I think we know that robins are um, fast and furiously feeding chicks and, and perhaps laying a second or third clutch of eggs at this time of year 
um, they do they day up to three depending on where they are in the country and how long the sort of warm weather is but they, they'll be onto their second clutch some of them and you might be seeing fledgling robins um, on the ground they, they're kind of brown and spotty they don't have the red breast they've got that very big round eye of a robin um, and they're still being fed probably by the father bird while the mum's um, sitting on the eggs um, but I thought I've I've been pushed into doing more research because I need to keep finding out more stuff for the podcast. And I thought I would just read, I found a little bit of folklore about robins. So it's very short. I thought I'd just read that about, about um, folklore around how the robin got its red breast. Um, so in the winter, when the frost was hard and long and the birds gathered to discuss what was to be done because they're slowly starving, the robin, which back then was a very dull brown bird, had an idea and hurried off to a cottage where he found a man clearing a path. The robin very bravely hops up to the man and stays close to him while he's sweeping. The man, realising the bird must be hungry to be so friendly, goes and gets a tray of crumbs for him. Robin flies off and gets the other birds to join in at the feast and through the hard season, the birds are fed by this and the other households that the robin has tamed into providing food. The birds, in gratitude for their survival, made him a small red waistcoat, which he still wears. So, and I just I, I really like that because it that's we I think we sometimes think that we've tamed robins and in that story they've tamed us which uh, I think is an interesting twist so um so we're heading towards the point in the podcast where um they introduce a, a meditation or a relaxation activity but I just want to pick up on something before we do that so you, you mentioned that you live in Sheffield in a city and that you found a lovely quiet spot to do your or maybe not so quiet I don't know but you found a spot to do your um, activity just now and, and I think you've been involved in some other work around urban forest bathing in, in other parts of the country I wondered if, I think it's just really interesting for people to realize that you can do this anywhere and you don't need to yeah to travel so I just wondered if you wanted to mention anything about the work you've been doing in London yeah, so um, in my work with Surrey, uh, with the Forest Bathing Institute, they're really keen to start urban forest bathing as well, because obviously there's lots of tree cover in Surrey. They're incredibly lucky where they live. Mm. But they realise that the people who probably need stuff like forest bathing the most are the people who live the most urban and might not have access to a car to get out to places. So being able to find a spot in an urban landscape or a park or even in your own garden where you could try forest bathing is something that we'd like to encourage. And um, I was actually interviewed for another podcast with a, a London producer called Vanessa Potter and she's a mindfulness advocate. And I happened to mention forest bathing to her and she got so excited about it that she's going to be doing a whole podcast series on urban forest bathing in London, um, specifically in Crystal Palace Park. Mm -hmm. But she really likes the idea of, I suppose, helping people's well-being in really urban areas, but also reconnecting people in her community after lockdown and, and trying to build up that sense of social connection again by having groups go on forest bathing walks in the local park and just seeing how it benefits them. And, I think typically the people who are drawn to forest bathing are, are people who've maybe tried mindfulness before or people who are already think that nature's fantastic. But the people we'd really like to help through forest bathing are those who 
are skeptical and wouldn't normally use nature for well-being or would never dream of doing something like mindfulness. So we're specifically targeting people who are skeptics and it's going to be a bit of a citizen science project seeing if we can measure their heart rate variability, get some survey data from them before and after and show them whether or not the walk does anything for them. You know, does it improve their well-being and heart rate variability? So hopefully what will happen is they'll love it and we'll be mapping their journey from skeptic to champion. But we, we just don't know. We don't know how it's going to go. Some people might love it. Other people might decide it's not for them. But at least we hope to give people ideas of how they can use their local park for forest bathing activities. Amazing. I can't wait to, to hear how you get on with that. That's fascinating. I mean, I'm, I know certainly from the work I do that I will find myself sometimes working with people who don't feel that they have any relationship in, in nature. It has no relevance to their lives. And usually I can find a way to just help tweak their curiosity about something. And, and that's the real joy of it for me is that there are a million ways in and a million different things that people find fascinating, you know, and whether it's some kind of really um, gruesome habits of a particular insect, you know, or um, parasite or, you know, the, or the absolute stunning beauty of the tiny details of pollen inside a flower or, you know, the, there are, yeah, so many ways to try and capture people and I love the challenge so I'm really interested in that um yeah if you can give me the details I'll put some links so that people can um find out information about the work that you're doing there as well because it sounds great yeah definitely it's going to be called park bathe a bit like park run but slower <laughs> and um we should be recording in August September time hopefully fantastic and yeah I think um picking up on on that theme of connecting to nature in urban spaces what I've decided to do instead of a guided meditation this time I've actually this just this morning made a sound recording in my garden of of the sounds that were there of just what happened you know what happened at that point obviously I have no control over that I can't plan it and it's the same when you go out and you spend time in nature you don't know what you're going to find or how it's going to make you feel um, so there were some beautiful, there was a lovely blackbird singing just above me, there were some beautiful bird songs, there was, I did hear a frog, I've got a very tiny pond, sort of half a metre across, and I did hear a tiny, one tiny little frog, so you might pick that up um, on the sound recording, but I just thought I would, I would um, record 10 minutes of garden sounds, so there are also cars in the background, the people wheeling wheelie bins around, There's, there are other noises, but for me, they they don't interfere with my nature connection. And I think listening and sounds are a really amazing way to kind of, um, to just escape into a different world, wherever you are. If you can perhaps lower your gaze or close your eyes, it helps. But even if you can't, just to tune into sounds that are there, it, it's, um, it's a, yeah, it's a really useful focus. And in, in terms of, um, mindfulness it, it's a technique that's used quite often into you know for um for meditation is is listening to sounds and and we tend to think in terms of um not judging the sounds that appear so what we tend to do all of the time is have things that we want more of and things that we don't want and we want to get rid of 
and we spend our you know it's, it's just a habit it's part of our nature to constantly be assessing the situation and trying to improve on it and not accepting things just as they are and being with whatever happens so it's a really useful way of just um yeah just accepting everything as it is and taking the opportunity to enjoy the real incredible beauty that is there for the for the taking at any time free you know there's always something really fascinating that we can listen to but we 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 screen it out because we're so caught up in that kind of internal monologue that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast so um yeah listening to sounds it's a really lovely thing to do so I've, I've just made this 10 minute soundtrack and I would encourage the listeners to just stop and lie down if you can and just listen to that for 10 minutes and then even better go outside and do it in, in the real world um and it's quite interesting to listen to recordings of birds and of nature at different times of year because the birds won't be doing this in in the winter they won't even be doing it in a couple of months time you know it's very it's it's mating season it's territorial singing it changes so um yeah so they're all my thoughts about why why we've got a 10 minute bird song to listen to um, I don't know if you've got any any other thoughts on that from your research or from forest bathing or anything else about listening to sounds and, and interference from um, human beings making noises around and about and, and how, how you kind of manage that. Uh, yeah, it can be tricky on forest bathing sessions. You're always going to have, you know, man-made sounds wherever you are, really. And I think we always just try and remind people just keep trying to focus in on the natural ones right. just accept the the other stuff as background noise and it's inevitable um i know somebody was telling me there was a guy who's trying to do uh conservation for areas in the world where there currently aren't man-made sounds you know how you have these dark sky reserves that people can travel to where there's no light pollution and you can see the night sky properly mm. he's trying to do the same thing with sound and i thought that was a beautiful idea but um yeah but there's not many places in the world no, no so i think you're very right it's accepting whatever comes um there might be a car going past but just keep trying to bring your attention back to the natural sounds that you can hear yeah it's so easy to just get caught up and be annoyed with the car and yeah. sometimes it's helpful to to just listen to the sound of the car but don't name it car just be curious about the qualities of the sound the rumbling the at what point does that sound vanish? When when can you hear it and when does it end? And the kind of um, the mystery of things just arriving and disappearing in in space, I think is a really fascinating thing to listen to. So yeah, lots of lots of options about how to listen. And um, yeah, and 10 minutes of my garden sounds for you to, to experiment with. Um, so yeah, I hope that's a, a nice place to um, to leave the podcast. and. Kirsten, it's just been so fascinating. As I said at the beginning, I could um, really talk to you for all day about all the things that you've done and uh, really, really grateful that you've, you've made time to share all that with us. It's been, uh, it's been great. Well, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. So good luck with all your projects. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you.